Chapter Two of the Jolly Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. The Jolly Corner by Henry James. Chapter Two. It was after this that there was most of a virtue for him most of a cultivated charm, most of a preposterous secret thrill, in the particular form of surrender to his obsession, and of address to what he more and more believed to be his privilege. It was what in these weeks he was living for, since he really felt life to begin but after Mrs. Muldoon had retired from the scene, and visiting the ample house from attic to cellar, making sure he was alone, he knew himself in safe possession, and, as he tacitly expressed it, let himself go. He sometimes came twice in the twenty-four hours. The moments he liked best were those of the gathering dusk, of the short autumn twilight. This was the time of which, again and again, he found himself hoping most. Then he could, as it seemed to him, most intimately wander and wait, linger and listen, feel his fine attention, never in his life before so fine, on the pulse of the great vague place. He preferred the lampless hour, and only wished he might have prolonged each day the deep crepuscular spell. Later, rarely much before midnight, but then for a considerable vigil, he watched with his glimmering light, moving slowly, holding it high, playing it far, rejoicing above all as much as he might, in open vistas, reaches of communication between rooms and by passages, the long straight chance or show, as he would have called it, for the revelation he pretended to invite. It was a practice he found he could perfectly work, without exciting remark. No one was in the least the wiser for it. Even Alice Staverton, who was moreover a well of discretion, didn't quite fully imagine. He let himself in and let himself out, with the assurance of calm proprietorship, and accident so far favoured him that if a fat avenue officer had happened on occasion to see him entering at eleven-thirty, he had never yet, to the best of his belief, been noticed as emerging at two. He walked there on the crisp November nights, arriving regularly at the evening's end. It was as easy to do this after dining out as to take his way to a club or to his hotel. When he left his club, if he hadn't been dining out, it was ostensibly to go to his hotel. And when he left his hotel, if he had spent a part of the evening there, it was ostensibly to go to his club. Everything was easy and fine. Everything conspired and promoted. There was truly, even in the strain of his experience, something that glossed over, something that salved and simplified all the rest of consciousness. He circulated, talked, renewed, loosely and pleasantly, old relations, met indeed so far as he could, new expectations, and seemed to make out on the whole that in spite of the career, of such different contacts which he had spoken of to Miss Staverton, as ministering so little, for those who might have watched it, to edification, he was positively rather liked than not. He was a dim secondary social success, and all with people who had truly not an idea of him. It was all mere surface sound, this murmur of their welcome, this popping of their corks, 
just as his gestures of response were the extravagant shadows, emphatic in proportion as they meant little, of some game of ombre chinoise. He projected himself all day in thought, straight over the bristling line of hard unconscious heads, and onto the other, the real, the waiting life, the life that as soon as he had heard behind him the click of his great house-door, began for him, on the jolly corner, as beguilingly as the slow opening bars of some rich music follows the tap of the conductor's wand. He always caught the first effect of the steel point of his stick, on the old marble of the hall pavement, large black-and-white squares that he remembered as the admiration of his childhood, and that had then made in him, as he now saw, for the growth of an early conception of style. This effect was the dim, reverberating tinkle as of some far-off bell, hung, who should say where, in the depths of the house, of the past, of that mystical other world that might have flourished for him, had he not, for weal or woe, abandoned it. On this impression he did ever the same thing. He put his stick noiselessly away in a corner, feeling the place once more in the likeness of some great glass bowl, all precious concave crystal, set delicately humming by the play of a moist finger round its edge. The concave crystal held, as it were, this mystical other world, and the indescribably fine murmur of its rim was the sigh there, the scarce audible pathetic wail to his strained ear of all the old baffled forsworn possibilities. What he did, therefore, by this appeal of his hushed presence, was to wake them into such measure of ghostly life as they might still enjoy. They were shy, all but unappeasably shy, but they weren't really sinister, at least they weren't as he had hitherto felt them, before they had taken the form he so yearned to make them take, the form he at moments saw himself in the light of fairly hunting on tiptoe, the points of his evening shoes, from room to room and from story to story. That was the essence of his vision, which was all rank folly, if one would, while he was out of the house and otherwise occupied, but which took on the last verisimilitude as soon as he was placed and posted. He knew what he meant and what he wanted. It was as clear as the figure on a cheque presented in demand for cash. His alter ego walked, that was the note of his image of him, while his image of his motive for his own odd pastime was the desire to waylay him and meet him. He roamed slowly, warily, but all restlessly he himself did. Mrs. Muldoon had been right, absolutely, with her figure of their craping, and the presence he watched for would roam restlessly too, but it would be as cautious and as shifty. The conviction of its probable, in fact its already quite sensible, quite audible evasion of pursuit, grew for him from night to night, laying on him finally a rigour to which nothing in his life had been comparable. It had been the theory of many superficially judging persons he knew, that he was wasting that life in a surrender to sensations, but he had tasted of no pleasure so fine as his actual tension, had been introduced to no sport that demanded at once the patience and the nerve of this stalking of a creature more subtle, yet at bay perhaps more formidable, than any beast of the forest. The terms, the comparison, the very practices of the chase, positively came again into play. 
There were even moments when passages of his occasional experience as a sportsman stirred memories from his younger time of moor and mountain and desert, revived for him, and to the increase of his keenness, by the tremendous force of analogy. He found himself at moments, once he had placed his single light on some mantel-shelf or in some recess, stepping back into shelter or shade, effacing himself behind a door or in an embrasure, as he had sought of old the vantage of rock and tree, he found himself holding his breath and living in the joy of the instant, the supreme suspense created by big game alone. He wasn't afraid, though putting himself the question, as he believed gentlemen on Bengal tiger-shoots, or in close quarters with the great bear of the Rockies, had been known to confess to having put it, and this indeed, since here at least he might be frank, because of the impression, so intimate and so strange, that he himself produced as yet a dread, produced certainly a strain beyond the liveliest he was likely to feel. They fell for him into categories, they fairly became familiar, the signs for his own perception of the alarm his presence and his vigilance created, though leaving him always to remark, portentously, on his probably having formed a relation, his probably enjoying a consciousness unique in the experience of man. People enough, first and last, had been in terror of apparitions, but who had ever before so turned the tables and become himself, in the apparitional world, an incalculable terror? He might have found this sublime had he quite dared to think of it, but he didn't too much insist, truly, on that side of his privilege. With habit and repetition he gained to an extraordinary degree the power to penetrate the dusk of distances and the darkness of corners, to resolve back into their innocence the treacheries of uncertain light, the evil-looking forms taken in the gloom by mere shadows, by accidents of the air, by shifting effects of perspective, putting down his dim luminary, he could still wander on without it, pass into other rooms, and, only knowing it was there behind him in case of need, see his way about, visually project for his purpose a comparative clearness. It made him feel, this acquired faculty, like some monstrous stealthy cat. He wondered if he would have glared at these moments with large, shining yellow eyes, and what it mightn't verily be for the poor, hard-pressed alter-ego to be confronted with such a type. He liked, however, the open shutters. He opened everywhere those Mrs. Muldoon had closed, closing them as carefully afterwards, so that she shouldn't notice. He liked, oh, this he did like, and above all in the upper rooms, the sense of the hard silver of the autumn stars through the window-panes, and scarcely less the flare of the street-lamps below, the white electric luster which it would have taken curtains to keep out. This was human, actual, social. This was of the world he had lived in, and he was more at his ease certainly for the countenance, coldly general and impersonal, that all the while, and in spite of his detachment, it seemed to give him. He had support, of course, mostly in the rooms, at the wide front and the prolonged side. It failed him considerably in the central shades and the parts at the back. But if he sometimes on his rounds was glad of his optical reach, so, none the less often, 
the rear of the house affected him as the very jungle of his prey. The place was there more subdivided, a large extension in particular, where small rooms for servants had been multiplied, abounded in nooks and corners, in closets and passages, in the ramifications especially of an ample back staircase, over which he leaned many a time to look far down, not deterred from his gravity even while aware that he might, for a spectator, have figured some solemn simpleton playing at hide-and-seek. Outside, in fact, he might himself make that ironic rapprochement, but within the walls, and in spite of the clear windows, his consistency was proof against the cynical light of New York. It had belonged to that idea of the exasperated consciousness of his victim to become a real test for him, since he had quite put it to himself from the first that, oh, distinctly, he could cultivate his whole perception. He had felt it as above all open to cultivation, which indeed was but another name for his manner of spending his time. He was bringing it on, bringing it to perfection by practice, in consequence of which it had grown so fine that he was now aware of impressions, attestations of this general postulate, that couldn't have broken upon him at once. This was the case more specifically with a phenomenon at last quite frequent for him in the upper rooms, the recognition, absolutely unmistakable, and by a turn dating from a particular hour, his resumption of his campaign after a diplomatic drop, a calculated absence of three nights, of his being definitely followed, tracked at a distance carefully taken, and to the express end that he should the less confidently, less arrogantly, appear to himself merely to pursue. It worried, it finally quite broke him up, for it proved of all the conceivable impressions the one least suited to his book. He was kept in sight while remaining himself, as regards the essence of his position, sightless, and his only recourse was then in abrupt turns, rapid recoveries of ground. He wheeled about retracing his steps, as if he might so catch in his face at least the stirred air of some other quick revolution. It was indeed true that his fully dislocalized thought of these manoeuvres recalled to him Pantaloon at the Christmas farce, buffeted and tricked from behind by ubiquitous Harlequin, but it left intact the influence of the conditions themselves each time he was re-exposed to them, so that in fact this association, had he suffered it to become constant, would on a certain side have but ministered to his intenser gravity. He had made, as I have said, to create on the premises the baseless sense of a reprieve, his three absences, and the result of the third was to confirm the after-effect of the second. On his return that night, the night succeeding his last intermission, he stood in the hall and looked up the staircase with a certainty more intimate than any he had yet known. He's there at the top, and waiting, not as in general falling back for disappearance, He's holding his ground, and it's the first time, which is a proof, isn't it, that something has happened for him. So Bryden argued with his hand on the banister, and his foot on the lowest stair, in which position he felt as never before the air chilled by his logic. He himself turned cold in it, for he seemed of a sudden to know what now was involved. 
Harder pressed? Yes, he takes it in, with its thus making clear to him that I've come, as they say, to stay. He finally doesn't like and can't bear it, in the sense, I mean, that his wrath, his menaced interest, now balances with his dread. I've hunted him till he has turned. That, up there, is what has happened. He's the fanged or the antlered animal brought at last to bay. There came to him, as I say, but determined by an influence beyond my notation, the acuteness of this certainty, under which, however, the next moment he had broken into a sweat that he would as a little consented to attribute to fear, as he would have dared immediately to act upon it for enterprise. It marked, none the less, a prodigious thrill, a thrill that represented sudden dismay, no doubt, but also represented, and with the self-same throb, the strangest, the most joyous, possibly the next minute almost the proudest, duplication of consciousness. He has been dodging, retreating, hiding, but now, worked up to anger, he'll fight. This intense impression made a single mouthful, as it were, of terror and applause. But what was wondrous was that the applause, for the felt fact, was so eager, since, if it was his other self he was running to earth, this ineffable identity was thus, in the last resort, not unworthy of him. It bristled there, somewhere near at hand, however unseen still, as the hunted thing, even as the trodden worm of the adage must at last bristle and Bryden at this instant tasted probably of a sensation more complex than had ever before found itself consistent with sanity. It was as if it would have shamed him that a character so associated with his own should triumphantly succeed in just skulking, should to the end not risk the open, so that the drop of this danger was, on the spot, a great lift of the whole situation. Yet with another rare shift of the same subtlety he was already trying to measure by how much more he himself might now be in peril of fear, so rejoicing that he could in another form actively inspire that fear, and simultaneously quaking for the form in which he might passively know it. The apprehension of knowing it must after a little have grown in him and the strangest moment of his adventure, perhaps, the most memorable, or really the most interesting, afterwards of his crisis, was the lapse of certain instants of concentrated conscious combat, the sense of a need to hold on to something, even after the manner of a man slipping and slipping on some awful incline, the vivid impulse, above all, to move, to act, to charge, somehow and upon something, to show himself, in a word, that he wasn't afraid. The state of holding on was thus the state to which he was momentarily reduced. If there had been anything in the great vacancy to seize, he would presently have been aware of having clutched it, as he might under a shock at home have clutched at the nearest chair-back. He had been surprised at any rate, of this he was aware, into something unprecedented since his original appropriation of the place. He had closed his eyes, held them tight for a long minute, as with that instinct of dismay and that terror of vision. When he opened them, the room, the other contiguous rooms, extraordinarily, seemed lighter, so light almost that at first he took the change for day. He stood firm, however that might be, just where he had paused, 
his resistance had helped him, it was as if there were something he had tided over. He knew after a little what this was. It had been in the imminent danger of flight. He had stiffened his will against going. Without this he would have made for the stairs, and it seemed to him that, still with his eyes closed, he would have descended them, would have known how, straight and swiftly, to the bottom. Well, as he had held out, here he was, still at the top, among the more intricate upper rooms, and with the gauntlet of the others, of all the rest of the house, still to run when it should be his time to go. He would go at his time, only at his time. Didn't he go every night very much at the same hour? He took out his watch. There was light for that. It was scarcely a quarter past one, and he had never withdrawn so soon. He reached his lodgings for the most part at two, with his walk of a quarter of an hour. He would wait for the last quarter, he wouldn't stir till then, and he kept his watch there with his eyes on it, reflecting while he held it that this deliberate wait, a wait with an effort which he recognized, would serve perfectly for the attestation he desired to make. It would prove his courage, unless indeed the latter might most be proved by his budging at last from his place. What he mainly felt now was that, since he hadn't originally scuttled, he had his dignities, which had never in his life seemed so many, all to preserve and to carry aloft. This was before him in truth as a physical image, an image almost worthy of an age of greater romance. That remark indeed glimmered for him only to glow the next instant with a finer light, since what age of romance, after all, could have matched either the state of his mind, or, objectively, as they said, the wonder of his situation. The only difference would have been that, brandishing his dignities over his head as in a parchment scroll, he might then, that is, in the heroic time, have proceeded downstairs with a drawn sword in his other grasp. At present, really, the light he had set down on the mantel of the next room would have to figure his sword which utensil, in the course of a minute, he had taken the requisite number of steps to possess himself of. The door between the rooms was open, and from the second another door opened to a third. These rooms, as he remembered, gave all three upon a common corridor as well, but there was a fourth beyond them, without issue save through the preceding. To have moved, to have heard his step again, was appreciably a help, though even in recognizing this he lingered once more a little by the chimney-piece on which his light had rested. When he next moved, just hesitating where to turn, he found himself considering a circumstance that, after his first and comparatively vague apprehension of it, produced in him the start that often attends some pang of recollection, the violent shock of having ceased happily to forget. He had come into sight of the door, in which the brief chain of communication ended, and which he now surveyed from the nearer threshold, the one not directly facing it. Placed at some distance to the left of this point, it would have admitted him to the last room of the four, the room without other approach or egress, had it not, to his intimate conviction, been closed since his former visitation, the matter probably of a quarter of an hour before. He stared with all his eyes at the wonder of the fact, arrested again where he stood, 
and again holding his breath while he sounded his sense. Surely it had been subsequently closed, that is, it had been on his previous passage indubitably open. He took it full in the face that something had happened between, that he couldn't have noticed before, by which he meant on his original tour of all the rooms that evening, that such a barrier had exceptionally presented itself. He had indeed since that moment undergone an agitation so extraordinary that it might have muddled for him any earlier view, and he tried to convince himself that he might perhaps then have gone into the room and inadvertently, automatically, on coming out, have drawn the door after him. The difficulty was that this exactly was what he never did. It was against his whole policy, as he might have said, the essence of which was to keep vistas clear. He had them from the first, as he was well aware, quite on the brain. The strange apparition, at the far end of one of them, of his baffled prey, which had become by so sharp an irony so little the term now to apply was the form of success his imagination had most cherished, projecting into it always a refinement of beauty. He had known fifty times the start of perception that had afterwards dropped, had fifty times gasped to himself, there, under some fond brief hallucination. The house, as the case stood, admirably lent itself. He might wonder at the taste, the native architecture of the particular time, which could rejoice so in the multiplication of doors, the opposite extreme to the modern, the actual almost complete prescription of them, but it had fairly contributed to provoke this obsession of the presence encountered telescopically, as he might say, focused and studied in diminishing perspective, and as by a rest for the elbow. It was with these considerations that his present attention was charged, they perfectly availed to make what he saw portentous. He couldn't, by any lapse, have blocked that aperture, and if he hadn't, if it was unthinkable, why, what else was clear but that there had been another agent? Another agent? He had been catching, as he felt a moment back, the very breath of him. But when had he been so close as in this simple, this logical, this completely personal act? It was so logical, that is, that one might have taken it for personal. Yet for what did Bryden take it, he asked himself, while, softly panting, he felt his eyes almost leave their sockets. Ah, this time at last they were, the two, the opposed projections of him, in presence. And this time, as much as one would, the question of danger loomed. With it rose, as not before, the question of courage, for what he knew the blank face of the door to say to him was, "'Show us how much you have.' It stared, it glared back at him with the challenge, it put to him the two alternatives. Should he just push it open or not? Oh, to have this consciousness was to think, and to think, Bryden knew as he stood there, was with the lapsing moments not to have acted. Not to have acted, that was the misery and the pang was even still not to act, was in fact all to feel the thing in another, in a new and terrible way. How long did he pause, and how long did he debate? There was presently nothing to measure it, for his vibration had already changed, as just by the effect of its intensity. 
shut up there, at bay, defiant, and with the prodigy of the thing palpably, provably done, thus giving notice like some stark signboard, under that accession of accent the situation itself had turned, and Bryden at last remarkably made up his mind on what it had turned to. It had turned altogether to a different admonition, to a supreme hint for him of the value of discretion. This slowly dawned, no doubt, for it could take its time, so perfectly on his threshold had he been stayed, so little as yet had he either advanced or retreated. It was the strangest of all things that now, when by his taking ten steps and applying his hand to a latch, or even his shoulder and his knee, if necessary, to a panel, all the hunger of his prime need might have been met, his high curiosity crowned, his unrest assuaged. It was amazing, but it was also exquisite and rare, that insistence should have, at a touch, quite dropped from him. Discretion, he jumped at that, and yet not verily at such a pitch, because it saved his nerves or his skin, but because much more valuably it saved the situation. When I say he jumped at it, I feel the consonance of this term with the fact that, at the end indeed of I know not how long, he did move again, he crossed straight to the door. He wouldn't touch it, it seemed now that he might if he would, he would only just wait there a little, to show, to prove that he wouldn't. He had thus another station, close to the thin partition by which revelation was denied him, but with his eyes bent and his hands held off in a mere intensity of stillness. He listened as if there had been something to hear, but this attitude, while it lasted, was his own communication. If you won't, then, good, I spare you and I give up. You affect me as by the appeal positively for pity. You convince me that for reasons rigid and sublime, what do I know? We both of us should have suffered. I respect them, then, and though moved and privileged as, I believe, it has never been given to man, I retire, I renounce, never on my honour to try again. So rest for ever, and let me. That, for Bryden, was the deep sense of this last demonstration, solemn, measured, directed, as he felt it to be. He brought it to a close, he turned away, and now verily he knew how deeply he had been stirred. He retraced his steps, taking up his candle, burnt, he observed, well-nigh to the socket, and marking again, lighten it as he would, the distinctness of his footfall, after which, in a moment, he knew himself at the other side of the house. He did hear what he had not yet done at these hours. He opened half a casement, one of those in the front, and let in the air of the night, a thing he would have taken at any time previous for a sharp rupture of his spell. His spell was broken now, and it didn't matter. Broken by his concession and his surrender, which made it idle henceforth that he should ever come back. The empty street, its other life so marked even by great lamp-lit vacancy, was within call, within touch. He stayed there as to be in it again, high above it though he was still perched. He watched, as for some comforting common fact, some vulgar human note, the passage of a scavenger or a thief, some night-bird however base. 
He would have blessed that sign of life. He would have welcomed positively the slow approach of his friend the policeman, whom he had hitherto only sought to avoid, and was not sure that if the patrol had come into sight he mightn't have felt the impulse to get into relation with it, to hail it on some pretext from his fourth floor. The pretext that wouldn't have been too silly or too compromising, the explanation that would have saved his dignity and kept his name, in such a case, out of the papers, was not definite to him. He was so occupied with the thought of recording his discretion, as an effect of the vow he had just uttered to his intimate adversary, that the importance of this loomed large, and something had overtaken all ironically his sense of proportion. If there had been a ladder applied to the front of the house, even one of the vertiginous perpendiculars employed by painters and roofers, and sometimes left standing overnight, he would have managed somehow, astride of the window-sill, to compass by outstretched leg and arm that mode of descent. If there had been some such uncanny thing as he had found in his room at hotels, a workable fire-escape, in the form of a notched cable or a canvas chute, he would have availed himself of it as proof, well, of his present delicacy. He nursed that sentiment, as the question stood, a little in vain, and even, at the end of he scarce knew once more how long, found it, as by the action on his mind of the failure of response to the outside world, sinking back to vague anguish. It seemed to him he had waited an age for some stir of the great grim hush. The life of the town was itself under a spell, so unnaturally, up and down the whole prospect of known and rather ugly objects, the blankness and the silence lasted. Had they ever, he asked himself, the hard-faced houses which had begun to look livid in the dim dawn, had they ever spoken so little to any need of his spirit? Great builded voids, great crowded stillnesses put on, often in the heart of cities, for the small hours, a sort of sinister mask, and it was of this large collective negation that Bryden presently became conscious, all the more that the break of day was, almost incredibly, now at hand, proving to him what a night he had made of it. He looked again at his watch, saw what had become of his time values. He had taken hours for minutes, not, as in other tense situations, minutes for hours, and the strange air of the streets was but the weak, the sullen flush of a dawn in which everything was still locked up. His choked appeal from his own open window had been the sole note of life, and he could but break off at last as for a worse despair. Yet while so deeply demoralized he was capable again of an impulse denoting, at least by his present measure, extraordinary resolution of retracing his steps to the spot where he had turned cold with the extinction of his last pulse of doubt as to there being in the place another presence than his own. This required an effort strong enough to sicken him, but he had his reason which overmastered for the moment everything else. There was the whole of the rest of the house to traverse, and how should he screw himself to that 
if the door he had seen closed were at present open. He could hold to the idea that the closing had practically been for him an act of mercy, a chance offered him to descend, depart, get off the ground, and never again profane it. This conception held together, it worked, but what it meant for him depended now clearly on the amount of forbearance his recent action, or rather his recent inaction, had engendered. The image of the presence, whatever it was, waiting there for him to go, this image had not yet been so concrete for his nerves as when he stopped short of the point at which certainty would have come to him, for with all his resolution, or more exactly with all his dread, he did stop short. He hung back from really seeing. The risk was too great, and his fear too definite. It took, at this moment, an awful specific form. He knew, yes, as he had never known anything, that should he see the door open, it would all too abjectly be the end of him. It would mean that the agent of his shame, for his shame was the deep objection, was once more at large and in general possession, and what glared him thus in the face was the act that this would determine for him. It would send him straight about to the window he had left open, and by that window, be long ladder and dangling rope as absent as they would, he saw himself uncontrollably, insanely, fatally take his way to the street. The hideous chance of this he could at least avert, but he could only avert it by recoiling in time from assurance. He had the whole house to deal with, this fact was still there, only he now knew that uncertainty alone could start him. He stole back from where he had checked himself, merely to do so was suddenly like safety, and making blindly for the greater staircase, left gaping rooms and sounding passages behind. Here was the top of the stairs, with a fine, large, dim descent, and three spacious landings to mark off. His instinct was all for mildness, but his feet were harsh on the floors, and strangely, when he had in a couple of minutes become aware of this, it counted somehow for help. He couldn't have spoken, the tone of his voice would have scared him, and the common conceit or resource of whistling in the dark, whether literally or figuratively, have appeared basely vulgar, yet he liked none the less to hear himself go, and when he had reached his first landing, taking it all with no rush but quite steadily, that stage of success drew from him a gasp of relief. The house withal seemed immense, the scale of space again inordinate, the open rooms, to no one of which his eyes deflected, gloomed in their shuttered state like mouths of caverns, only the high skylight that formed the crown of the deep well created for him a medium in which he could advance, but which might have been, for queerness of colour, some watery underworld. He tried to think of something noble, as that his property was really grand, a splendid possession, but this nobleness took the form, too, of the clear delight with which he was finally to sacrifice it. They might come in now, the builders, the destroyers, they might come as soon as they would. At the end of two flights he had dropped to another zone, and from the middle of the third, with only one more left, he recognized the influence of the lower windows, 
of half-drawn blinds, of the occasional gleam of street-lamps, of the glazed spaces of the vestibule. This was the bottom of the sea, which showed an illumination of its own, and which he even saw paved, when at a given moment he drew up to sink a long look over the banisters, with the marble squares of his childhood. By that time indubitably he felt, as he might have said in a commoner cause, better. It had allowed him to stop and draw breath, and the case increased with the sight of the old black-and-white slabs. But what he most felt was that now, surely, with the element of impunity pulling him as by hard, firm hands, the case was settled for what he might have seen above had he dared that last look. The closed door, blessedly remote now, was still closed, and he had only, in short, to reach that of the house. He came down further. He crossed the passage, forming the access to the last flight. And if here again he stopped an instant, it was almost for the sharpness of the thrill of assured escape. It made him shut his eyes, which opened again to the straight slope of the remainder of the stairs. Here was impunity still, but impunity almost excessive, inasmuch as the side-lights and the high fan-tracery of the entrance were glimmering straight into the hall, an appearance produced, he the next instant saw, by the fact that the vestibule gaped wide, that the hinged halves of the inner door had been thrown far back. Out of that again the question sprang at him, making his eyes, as he felt, half start from his head, as they had done at the top of the house, before the sign of the other door. If he had left that one open, hadn't he left this one closed, and wasn't he now in the most immediate presence of some inconceivable occult activity? It was as sharp, the question, as a knife in his side, but the answer hung fire still, and seemed to lose itself in the vague darkness to which the thin, admitted dawn, glimmering archwise over the whole outer door, made a semicircular margin, a cold, silvery nimbus that seemed to play a little as he looked, to shift and expand and contract. It was as if there had been something within it, protected by indistinctness, and corresponding in extent with the opaque surface behind, the painted panels of the last barrier to his escape, of which the key was in his pocket. The indistinctness mocked him, even while he stared, affected him as somehow shrouding or challenging certitude, so that after faltering an instant on his step he let himself go with the sense that here was at last something to meet, to touch, to take, to know, something all unnatural and dreadful, but to advance upon which was the condition for him either of liberation or of supreme defeat. The penumbra, dense and dark, was the virtual screen of a figure which stood in it, as still as some image erect in a niche, or as some black-visored sentinel guarding a treasure. Bryden was to know afterwards, was to recall and make out the particular thing he had believed during the rest of his descent, he saw in its great grey glimmering margin the central vagueness diminish, and he felt it to be taking the very form toward which, 
for so many days the passion of his curiosity had yearned. It gloomed, it loomed, it was something, it was somebody, the prodigy of a personal presence. Rigid and conscious, spectral yet human, a man of his own substance and stature, waited there to measure himself with his power to dismay. This only could it be, this only till he recognized, with his advance, that what made the face dim was the pair of raised hands that covered it, and in which, so far from being offered in defiance, it was buried as for dark deprecation. So Bryden before him took him in, with every fact of him now in the higher light hard and acute, his planted stillness, his vivid truth, his grizzled bent head and white masking hands, his queer actuality of evening dress, of dangling double eyeglass, of gleaming silk lappet and white linen, of pearl button and gold watch-guard and polished shoe. No portrait by a great modern master could have presented him with more intensity, thrust him out of his frame with more art, as if there had been a treatment of the consummate sort in his every shade and salience. The revulsion for our friend had become before he knew it immense, this drop in the act of apprehension to the sense of his adversary's inscrutable manoeuvre, that meaning at least while he gaped it offered him, for he could but gape at his other self in this other anguish, gape as a proof that he, standing there for the achieved, the enjoyed, the triumphant life, couldn't be faced in his triumph. Wasn't the proof in the splendid covering hands, strong and completely spread, so spread and so intentional, that in spite of a special verity that surpassed every other, the fact that one of these hands had lost two fingers, which were reduced to stumps, as if accidentally shot away, the face was effectually guarded and saved. Saved, though, would it be? Bryden breathed his wonder till the very impunity of his attitude, and the very insistence of his eyes, produced as he felt, a sudden stir which showed the next instant as a deeper portent, while the head raised itself, the betrayal of a braver purpose. The hands, as he looked, began to move, to open, then, as if deciding in a flash, dropped from the face and left it uncovered and presented. Horror with the sight had leaped into Bryden's throat, gasping there in a sound he couldn't utter, for the bared identity was too hideous as his, and his glare was the passion of his protest. The face, that face, Spencer Bryden's? He searched it still, but looking away from it in dismay and denial, falling straight from his height of sublimity. It was unknown, inconceivable, awful, disconnected from any possibility. He had been sold, he inwardly moaned, stalking such game as this. The presence before him was a presence, the horror within him a horror, but the waste of his nights had been only grotesque, and the success of his adventure an irony. Such an identity fitted his at no point, made its alternative monstrous. A thousand times, yes, as it came upon him nearer now, the face was the face of a stranger. It came upon him nearer now, quite as one of those expanding, fantastic images 
projected by the magic lantern of childhood, for the stranger, whoever he might be, evil, odious, blatant, vulgar, had advanced as for aggression, and he knew himself give ground. Then harder pressed still, sick with the force of his shock, and falling back as under the hot breath and the roused passion of a life larger than his own, a rage of personality before which his own collapsed, he felt the whole vision turn to darkness, and his very feet give way. His head went round, he was going, he had gone. End of chapter 2